Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are looking at um, Acts verse by verse, and as we do, we've kind of settled on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is kind of the theme verse, the launching point for our study. Acts 1 verse 8 says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as we've seen the church progress in the book of Acts, we've seen it start, we've seen it scatter, and now we're in this process where we see it sent. And so today we want to ask the question, as Paul uh, preaches on Mars Hill, what response leads to a relationship to God? And as we look at Paul specifically, there's three missionary journeys that scripture records for us. The first one, he went establishing churches in Southeast Asia Minor. The second one, he wanted to strengthen churches, but he was led across the Aegean Sea to Greece and back home to Ephesus. And then we come to the third missionary journey, which will start in two weeks at the last half of Acts 18. So we're kind of towards the end of the second missionary journey, and we seek Paul make a case for what is the response required from us to have a relationship with God? Um, as you remember, he's been driven out of Thessalonica. This is a common theme with Paul. He goes to a city and he gets kicked out over and over and over again. And the reason is because he challenges the status quo. His pattern is this. He'll go to a new city and he'll go where first to preach the gospel? He goes to the synagogue. He goes there because he is learned. He is uh, educated. They respect him. And so he's always invited to teach in the synagogue. So he goes to the synagogue and he begins to preach. He explains to them who Jesus is and the difference between um, honoring the traditions of their past and recognizing who Jesus is. This is Paul's mandate. He then is, uh, because he's driven out of Thessalonica, he then goes to Berea and we see the description of the Berean church. And now he's driven out again. So he's waiting for the rest of his compadres to meet up with him. We find ourselves in verse 16 of Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of what? So this is his response. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So so the sense is this, that Paul would have loved to have waited for everyone to meet him in Athens. But as he gets to Athens, he is kind of like a tourist in some sense. Uh, Athens is a historic city with a lot of background. It is a uh, cultural icon for its day. And as he observes the city, he sees that it's full of idols. He sees the way that they worship the idols. He sees the way that their everyday life has been impacted because of the idols. Athens was a famous uh, city, historic Um, But he's depressed by the magnitude of their idolatry. He is depressed that their whole way of living is altered by not only their recognition of these different idols in their life, but the way they've embraced them into their life. The idea here is this, um, this word in Greek is uh, kata-idols. In other words, they are under idols or they're swamped by the idols. 
So while there's this beauty of Athens, they have the best sculptors, the architects could offer. The beauty didn't honor God, so it didn't impress him. So he goes to the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace, and here's the challenge for the audience in Athens for Paul. They are cultured, they are educated, they are intellectual. It is not the same type of audience he's used to preaching to. Now the greatest days of Athens were behind it. It could still be fairly described as the capital of the Greco-Roman world, the intellectual capital anyway, and at the same time, the religious capital of Greece. And so this is the audience he's dealing with. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean, everyone say Epicurean, and Stoic philosophers. So these are the two groups of people he is reasoning with. Um, in fact, when I was in Guatemala and uh, when we were in Tigua on our last night, I was looking for, um, I had a few uh, quetzals left, you know, the Guatemalan money. And how many of you know when you have money in a foreign country, it just feels like monopoly money? <laughs> it just feels like if you don't spend it by the time you leave the country, it's just good for nothing, right? And so we're just walking around the city of Antigua and then uh, we... Uh, we went, I, I was able to get some earrings for Libby, had a few quetzals left, and right across the street from that market, there's a uh, restaurant called Epicure. And Epicure, if you look up the definition of Epicure, that word, it is to, to love the fine, uh, fine food and fine wine and fine dining. It's this, and, and by the way, they did do fine food. We got these um, pommiers from there, and Libby, they were just amazing. They were just absolutely the best cookies we've ever had. This is Epicureans. They're in love with uh, pleasuring their senses. The Stoic philosophers. Uh, well, first, the Epicureans, they pleasured, uh, they pursued pleasure, I should say, as the chief purpose in life. So the best food, the best art, the best wine, the best of everything. They didn't deny the existence of gods, but they believed that gods had nothing to do with man. Think about that, that gods had nothing to do with man. So there was no opportunity for men to have a relationship with God. The Stoics believed that everything was God. Everything was God, and God was in everything. So they believed that all things, good and evil, were from God, so there's nothing that could be resisted, and they believed there was no particular direction or destiny for mankind. You think about that, these two combining uh, influences on the culture in Athens. You have one group of people who just pursued pleasure in everything. So food, wine, lust, sex, relationship, they just pursued pleasure in everything. And then the Stoics believed that, uh, that all things good or evil were from God. So you can indulge in anything you wanted to. You take a combination of those two forces, and what will you have for your culture? This is what Paul observed. They pursued all pleasure, and nothing was good or evil, so the, they pursued everything. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with them and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Paul's been described a lot of things. This is a new one to add to the list. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to uh, Aeropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Why? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. 
Verse 21, and all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So because this was a new message, a new thing they had heard, it was a novelty to them. So they say, hey, let's get this babbler in. We haven't heard this. Jesus is resurrected and he has new life and this is who he's following. We haven't heard this before. Why don't we invite him? So verse 22, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very, what's the word? Does that sound like a compliment? So today we're going to look at three responses. And of those three, which is the response that actually leads to a relationship with God? I would submit to you first, being religious does not mean you have a relationship with God. Now, Paul did not begin with the exposition of Scripture which was his custom with Jews. He would normally start way back in the beginning with names like um, Abraham, right? Moses. When he was talking to a Jewish crowd, he, he began with what they knew. And so he would begin with Abraham and Moses, and he would talk about the forefathers of the faith and how they pointed to Jesus. And this is different. He's talking to Greek culture. He's talking to people that pursued pleasure with every fiber of their being. And he says, I, I know that you are very religious. Paul was beginning with this general reference to religion, and again, they were a religious people, but when Paul said it this way of them, it didn't sound like a positive thing. By the way, is it okay to be religious? I'm religious, I think. You know, if you look at religious, one of the, one of the definitions um, says that you are someone who is beholden to vows. I'm religious, I think. I go to church every Sunday. Because I have to. be weird if I didn't. Because <laughs> I want to. I love being here. I pray multiple times a day, as you do. I try to read the scriptures every day, as you do. I try to acknowledge that there's a Holy Spirit in my life that I will listen to, as I know you do. Um, If I wasn't the pastor, I'm pretty sure Libby and I would be in church every Sunday. We're religious. I think the difference is, what are we trusting when it comes to our faith? Now, if we trust our religious behavior, do you see where that gets a little iffy? So if we trust the fact that we go to church every Sunday, if we trust the fact that we have this prayer that we do and we read this amount of scripture and, you know, we go to this breakfast and we go to this, all of these things that we have on our cosmic checklist, by then we have transformed what should have been a relationship and now we're being religious for being religious sake as the sole metric of our relationship with God. So being religious does not mean you have a relationship with God. It is okay to be religious. I quite would like if most of our church was religious. It means you would be here. It means that, right? It means that you would give faithfully. It means that you would attend things. It means that you would be invested. It means that you would pray. It means that you would read your Bible. But it's not solely being religious that means you have a relationship with God. Paul goes on. For as I passed along, verse 23, 
and observe the objects of your worship. Beautiful phrase. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I would say, secondly, being respectful does not mean you have a relationship with God. Being religious doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. Being respectful does not mean you have a relationship with God. It's interesting because 600 years before Paul, there was this plague that came on the city, and a man named Epimenides had an idea. He let loose a flock of sheep through the town, and wherever they laid down, they would sacrifice that sheep to the God that had the nearest shrine or temple. You wonder if the sheep ever caught on on this, right? And there's like a few at the end, and they're just like, no, you lay down. No, you lay down. Wherever they laid down, they said, oh, we're going to sacrifice this sheep, and we will offer it as a sacrifice to the nearest shrine or temple. And if a sheep lay down near no shrine or temple, they would sacrifice that sheep to the unknown God. Just in case they forgot a deity. Just in, forget, just in case they forgot a power, uh, a deity that was so powerful that uh, they didn't want to forget. And so it wasn't a matter of they were worshiping this unknown God. They were just covering all their bases. So the uh, Athens was filled with statues honoring and dedicated to the unknown God. And Paul understood that in their extensive pantheon, this unknown God basically covered any God that may have been neglected. They were doing so out of respect, just in case they were covering their bases, just in case we forgot something, we're covering our bases, just in case. And they were being just respectful, just in case they forgot. Church, I would submit to you that being religious is no pathway for a relationship. And I would also say that just being respectful is no pathway to being in a relationship with God. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. And be praying for our Easter services because we will have, God willing, this place packed with people who um, have lived their life perhaps either being very religious or very respectful, but with no relationship with God. And the whole purpose we make a big deal out of Easter and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because people are uniquely sensitive during this time of year, and they will accept your invitation to church. They will come and bring their kids for the egg hunt. They will come and take part. They'll come and have breakfast with us. They'll come and take a photo in our photo booth and have the memento because they're either being respectful or being religious. And here in our service, what we're going to try to say is, hey, Jesus loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you. So here's this culture, and they have, they, have, they have objects of worship. Remember that phrase? They are religious by all means. They are respectful by all means. Shoot, they included the unknown God just in case they forgot someone. Paul goes on, verse 24. He begins pointing them who, to who this unknown God really is. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he starts in the beginning, doesn't he? Who made the world and everything in it. 
He doesn't live in temples made by man. Verse 25, or is he served by human hands as though he needed anything? Since he himself gives all to mankind life and breath and everything. It's so interesting. There's no mention of Abraham. There's no mention of Moses. There's no mention of Torah. Why? Because this is a different group of people. This is a good lesson for us. That Jesus always began with where people were when he brought them to the saving knowledge of who Jesus, of who he was. Always begin with where they were. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is a beautiful verse. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or a stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It's so interesting. Paul begins at the beginning. He begins with creation. He begins with the foundations of the world. He says that our God does not live in temples by man. All of the effort you have made to be religious, to build structures, to have a, uh, to have a, a place where an unknown God is recognized, all of the things you have done to be respectful and to make sure he was included just in case, this is not where God dwells. In fact, he dwelled in the very beginning. It's interesting because in our day and age, in the time I have been alive, I think our evangelism has shifted. It's interesting because um, there is a lot that uh, we used to take for granted about what people believed about the Bible or who Jesus is. And so we could start at a different place in our conversation to introduce them to Jesus. And I was like... um, 16 years old, our church developed um, a SWAT team. And some of you are really excited about that, I can tell. It was a SWAT team. You know what the acronym was for that? Soul Winning Attack Team. We were so cheesy, man. And we would go out on Thursday nights, and we would go to the Newport Beach Pier. And we would be in teams of two, and I'd be 16-year-old, just ready to save the whole world, like, just listen to me, right? And we'd go in teams of two, and we'd just go and walk up to strangers and just talk to them. And you know how we would start most conversations? We would start with this. Do you know if you die today, if you go to heaven or to hell? Are you 100% sure that if you died? Isn't that a great way to start a conversation, by the way? And we would talk to them about that. And if someone said no, and said, would you like to know? And then you, hopefully they said yes. And if they did, we'd go and we'd go to Romans chapter 3. All our verses were in Romans. Uh, That's how I was was taught to evangelize and to bring someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We'd go to Romans chapter 3. There's a lot of verses you could start with. We'd start with verse 10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not one. First thing we would tell someone is they're a sinner. We'd go to Romans 3.23 and say, well, the wages of your sin is death. We would talk about, uh, we would say things like, um, we would try to convince people they're sinners. 
and just get them to acknowledge that. And then we would get them to acknowledge the fact that there's a price to be paid for sin and all of these different things. Um, you know where you have to start with someone today? You have to start with whether or not they believe there's a God. We have to start with whether or not they even acknowledge that there's a creator. I think it's so beautiful that here's Paul, and in the course of the book of Acts, he starts from different places with people. Do I believe everyone's a sinner? Yes. Do I believe there's a price to be paid for sin? Yes. But it's, it's this nuanced approach to helping people understand who Jesus is based on not where I understand Scripture, but based where, where they approach Scripture. And so here's Paul. And in some contexts, he comes with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and who Moses is. In other contexts, he says, man, you guys are vipers. You're stealing from your own people. How could you possibly do that? You're supposed to be the priest. You're supposed to be the people in charge. And now you're stealing from your own people. And in other contexts, he says, you know, there's a God who created us. This is what he does here. Look at this verse again. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He goes on, we see, and he says this um, in verse 30, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. He doesn't command people to be religious. He doesn't command people to be respectful. Our God commands us to repent. There is a God in heaven that is our creator. He is Lord. He is ruler. He is king. And in his authority as such, the times of ignorance God overlook. But now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is the message of the gospel. He goes on in verse 31 to say this, because he has fixed a day on which he will, say that next world word, judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul went from knowing who God is and the very creator uh, God to who we are, our responsibility to him and our accountability if we dishonor him. Paul didn't preach a soft gospel. He boldly confronted the wrong idea that Athenians had about God and confronted them with the reality of a coming judgment. It is as, it is as he breathes these words about judgment that for the first time he refers to Jesus. His first mention of Jesus presents Jesus as a righteous judge. Now, Paul didn't want to leave the Athenians with the idea that Jesus was only a righteous judge, but he stops here because the Epicureans and the Stoics lived their life with no accountability. They lived their life with no accountability to a higher authority. The religious uh, behaviors that they did, the respect that they had, did not allow those gods to have accountability into their life. And so here Paul begs with them to understand it is God who created the world. He is Lord and King and ruler, and we must repent. We are commanded to do so. He begins now to really talk about what he wants to talk about, the person and the work of who Jesus is. Look at verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. 
Verse 33, Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You see the progression in verse 32, verse 33, 34. Uh, Some mocked, others said maybe later, and still others joined. Think about it. They were going one way, and now they were going another. What response leads to a relationship to God? Well, being religious or respectful alone does not mean you have a relationship with God. The pathway to a relationship with God is through repentance. We must turn from our ways. The resurrection wasn't a popular idea with Greek philosophers, by the way. Some Some thought Paul was very foolish for believing this. Others wanted to hear more. But the Greeks were fond of the idea of the immortality of the soul, but not the idea of the resurrection of the body. They felt that anything material was inherently evil, so there really could be nothing as a glorified body. They thought the ultimate form of glory would simply be the pure in spirit. And he could have, if he wanted to, stay there and discuss Greek philosophy all day long, but Paul was not interested in that. If he couldn't talk about Jesus, he didn't have much to say And so without a doubt, Paul was really just beginning his sermon. Far more than wanting to quote Greek poets, he wanted to tell them about Jesus. But as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, they stopped him short. Paul discussed more with people one-on-one, and we see that continue in chapter 18 next week. But he he was prevented from saying all he wanted to say in his speech there. It's interesting because the results seem small. It seems really small. Um, Some believed. Some said maybe. Some denounced him. We see Dionysus. We see Damaris come to Jesus. And it begs an observation for us that as a church family, as individuals, if we preach Christ with grace, with love, and with truth, we rest in the work of the Holy Spirit on what actually happens. It is not for us to win someone to Christ. It's to preach Christ with grace, love, and truth. It's to share the good news that Jesus loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. And so this morning, we think about these responses, and we think about Paul going to the extent that he did. And by the way, when we think about Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the amazing thing is is it is not simply a geographical uh, progression He says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will be witnesses first in Jerusalem, right? In other words, immediately where you are. So I want you to think about immediately where you are. Who are the people you have relationship with? Who are the people that you have, uh, yeah, that you have relationship with? Those are first the people we're to be witnesses to. So think about that with me. Who are the people that you're going to see this week? Who are the people you see every week? The people you work with, the people, um, the people you get your coffee from, uh, who are the people, who are, who, who are the, the regular appointments in your week? That is your Jerusalem. Who are your neighbors? Who are the people that you will be in constant contact week after week after week? This is our call to be witness to them. And then it says Jerusalem, but also Judea. In other words, the surrounding areas. Who are the people that are around? But then it says, and to Samaria. Now, when we think about to Samaria, it is not simply a geographical encouragement. 
I believe that when, 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 when Jesus says, and go to Samaria, I believe he said this, go to the places and the people you don't want to go to. You remember who the Samaritans were? Those in Samaria, they avoided at all costs. When you think about the good Samaritan in that whole story, uh, it starts with this young man who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit life? He was a lawyer. He was educated. And Jesus, as he often does, simply responds uh, to a question with a question. I hope I'm that wise one day. Where when someone asks a question, I'll just ask a question right back. He says, uh, what must I do to inherit life? And Jesus says, well, what, are the, what does the law say? You know the scriptures. You're a lawyer. What does the law say? And so the young man said, well, you should love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and with your mind. And Jesus says, yep, that sounds about right. Go do that. And the neighbor says, well, or the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? He wanted to trick Jesus. The text makes it very clear that the Lord is trying to trick Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, okay, enough questions. Let me tell you a story. He tells a story about the Good Samaritan, and, and we know the story. Um, we, have, we have first the, um, the man is traveling, and he's beaten up by thieves, which is common in that day. If you were traveling long distances like this man obviously was, you would travel in a pack. You would travel in a caravan, and you would have men who would take watches over different parts of the night so that at no time was everyone asleep. You'd have at least one or two people watching out for your belongings, your animals, your family, so that you wouldn't be robbed. This man was traveling alone, and he was robbed. And he has three visitors. Anybody remember the first one? He's a priest comes by. Someone you would say who is probably pretty religious, don't you think? Yeah. Here's the religious priest, and he comes by. And I forget which one, the priest or the, the next one, but literally walks on the other side of the road. Pays him no mind. Looks down on him, if you would. And doesn't help this man who is bleeding, who is hurt, who is, uh, who is one of his own. It's another Jewish man. And the next visitor is a Levite. I would say he's probably religious and respectful as well, don't you think? And here's this Levite, and he does basically the same thing. You know, James says, if you see a brother in need, and you say, and he's, and he's, and he's cold, and you say, hey, man, cheer up. Hope you warm up. I'm going to say a prayer for you. And you don't give him clothing. Your faith is dead. There's no life in it. The third, of course, is the Samaritan. Here's the Samaritan from opposite sides of the street, from opposite sides of the world, one who is not his own, one who is the sworn enemy. This Samaritan ends up coming, and he brings him aid, and he takes the Samaritan, and he takes, or he takes this man, and the Samaritan takes him, puts him on his animal, and he travels with him to the nearest inn. Um, and in that inn, he tells the innkeeper, hey, uh, uh, I, I've taken care of this man. Do everything he, you need to to take care of this person, and when I come back again, I will pay you whatever I owe you, pays for his recovery. Uh, when Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, what he says is go to the people you know, that you like, that you're in relationship with. He said, be witnesses to the people you're around, the people that are geographically in your area, but then also be witnesses to the people you would not ordinarily go to. Go there as well. 
Paul clearly gives this example of going to this place. And in doing so, he goes to this place where normally he wouldn't go. Normally he's going to the Jewish people. Normally he's going to people that are ready to receive his word. But he has this opportunity to preach to them. And really he comes down to this. He says, being religious is not enough. Church, are you solely religious when it comes to your faith? Are you solely religious? Is it a matter of just going through the motions? You have objects of worship. You have these moments where you show up in your faith, but they're nothing more than this checklist that you have, uh, you have learned to apprehend or to gather, and it's just objects of worship. There's no faith behind it. Are you solely respectful? Are you just respectful when it comes to the things of God? Or have you repented? Have you come to the place where to have a relationship with Jesus means we must repent and accept him? Now, I would say this. Most of us in this room, most of us, if you're watching, you have made a decision to follow Jesus. You have made a decision, and that's why you're here. But in the course of our life, wouldn't you agree there are moments, there are seasons where if we're not careful, we slip back and we slip back into religious mode. We slip back into the state that simply does things out of routine or memory or spiritual muscle memory. Or maybe we go back and we go moments or seasons where we do things just because we're respectful. It wouldn't be right if I didn't show up. It wouldn't be right if I didn't pray before this meal. I'm just doing it out of respect. Just in case God's watching, right? And what Paul is begging them to consider is this unknown God has a name and his name is Jesus and it's time for us to repent. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, as we consider these responses, as we consider what it looks like for us to have a faith that is alive, that moves, that breathes, that works, that grows, would you help us resist the temptation of simply being religious, Lord? Would you help us resist this temptation of simply going through the motions, of simply allowing ourselves to go through this checklist, the monotony of our faith? We show up on Sunday. We pray before our meals. We show up for our Bible study. We do all these things. Oh, it's time for the monthly breakfast. Here we go again. And we just go through the rote routine of our faith. Father, would you shatter that perspective this morning? Would you help us not to be solely religious? For those of us who, who simply express our faith in the way it's expressed out of respect, it would be weird if we didn't show up. It would be weird if we didn't pray. It would, be, it would hurt someone's feelings if we didn't do this or that. It would, Lord, would you shatter that perspective, Father? We want to be people who have real relationships, real relationships with you, Father, a real relationship that lives and breathes and walks and talks and grows and stumbles and gets back up, a, re a relationship, Lord, premised on this idea of repentance, that we will turn away from the way we have been going through life in order to about face and follow you. 
So, Father, in the stillness of this moment, I would ask that you would reveal to us, those of us who name you as our Lord and Savior, that you would reveal to us the area in our life we need to repent. Maybe we're being a little religious. Maybe we're being a little respectful. Maybe there's another area of our life that we're just holding on to. And Lord, would you ask, would you reveal that to us so that we can repent? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.